Hey, what's going on? It's Canuckstock here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host, as always, he is Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also covers the team for The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team. AvenueMachinery.ca, DouglasLakeEquipment.com. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, Supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. Five in a row, Drancer. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Let's Five start with the big row. news. What's that? Aaron Rodgers? May 8th. Oh, yes, yes. That's Mark the big it news. Mark on your calendars. May 8th, the NHL draft lottery. The Connor Bedard sweepstakes will officially be decided May 8th. I believe it starts at 4 p.m. Pacific. Although I did hear interesting... Uh, from Elliot Friedman, that this is apparently not going to be a you know at the intermission of a playoff game type deal. It's going to be like an hour long production. Yeah, because it's the Connor Bedard as it should, lottery. as it should be. Unfortunately, the Canucks' presence at what should be their equivalent of the Stanley Cup, the air is deflating out of that balloon and and making that fart sound that a balloon makes <sighs> as it zips around a room and deflates. Right, five in a row. Now five we can get to the. Now we can get to the. Stuff that matters and less. The are, team's performance. They are currently tied with St. Louis in points and points present percentage. Uh, St. Louis has the three additional regulation wins. Yeah. Uh, so the Canucks currently eighth in uh, in the lottery standings. That gives them six percent chance uh, at winning the lottery. Brutal. If they uh, if they swip, switch places with St. Louis, they would have a five percent chance uh, of winning the lottery. Which, as you said, May eighth, the big news from the NHL today. But yeah. Five in a row. They beat the Stars 5-2 last night. Uh, as we talked about on the show, that was set up not to be an easy game No, but a schedule, a schedule win. We uh, haven't uh, talked about a, schedule wins A schedule wins loss for Dallas, and that means it's a schedule win yeah. for the Canucks. But and, you hey, still have to take it. They you did it. You still have to go out and do it and leave no doubt, and they did. They left no doubt. They controlled the game from the outset. Beast of a game from the JT Miller, Brock Besser, Phil D. Giuseppe line. Mm -hmm. Loved their game. Um... There was no real suspense. Like, I know Jamie Benn made it a little bit interesting late in the second after sort of a, a pretty bad Phil DiGiuseppe penalty. But short of that, the Canucks were so clearly better and so clearly in control. Great. You need to win those games. Again, this has to be your expectation. If you think this team has turned the corner and become a playoff caliber team, that's a game they have to win, not a game where they are like, you know, heroic conquerors for coming out of two points with. Dallas was playing four of six. They were down two-thirds of their, or, or sorry, they were down a third of their top six forward group. They had Matt Murray in net, and we know Matt Murray doesn't like yes, playing at Rogers Arena of like playing the Canucks. <laughs> Guys named Matt Murray. Tough, tough two weeks for them against Vancouver shooters. Good for them. It was a good game. What else can we say? Uh, I thought they looked, I thought just kind of looking at how it's the same, how it builds on what they've done under Tockett and the five-game win streak in particular, I thought the thing that stood out to me, they looked very comfortable defending the lead in the third period, which obviously for much of this season was absolutely not what you would call the Canucks while defending a third-period lead. They rarely looked comfortable doing it. I thought they did a really good job of it, and not only defending and not breaking down, but creating counterattack opportunities, right? Creating on-man rushes, creating not the same volume of shot attempts as the Stars had, right? Understandably, the Stars are pushing even with tired legs. Uh, so they had more actual shot attempts, but better quality than the Stars were able to generate. And that's, you know, again, you can say, well, yeah, that's what good teams are supposed to do. That's true. 
but we've so rarely seen the Canucks do it this season. We did not see them mm. do it with any sort of consistency. So, hey, they, they just have to keep checking those boxes, and I thought they did that one uh, really well. That's one that stands out for me when we're looking at the win last night. You can text in 650-650. What stood out for you about last night's win? I thought the Canucks breakout or I thought the Canucks' ability to prevent the Stars from breaking out with speed atrophied significantly. Like, there was a moment in the second period where I thought the Stars really had a shot at getting back into the game. And it was after they figured out um, a breakout. And this is classic Pete DeBoer, right? Like, Pete DeBoer's an exceptional coach. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I know I know there's not, like, the cups or the easy stuff to point to, but Pete DeBoer is one of the five best coaches in this league. No question about it in my mind. Um but they started doing this thing where they'd have a winger slash, which is skate horizontally across the red line, basically, and they'd hit him. And then instead of trying to like dump it in or something like that, he'd effectively do either like a button hook or just a quick drop to someone who'd skate through. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Canucks gave them nothing in the first period and they had no legs, absolutely no legs. And in the second period, they started doing this. If you go watch the Jamie Ben goal, the, the star's first goal. This was off of a play like this. And then the Jamie Ben chance in tight. Do you remember that one? Yes, the Demko stopped. That was one, yeah. also off a chance like that. And once they started figuring that out, once they got a breakout that seemed to work pretty consistently against the Canucks forecheck, they were able to generate a, a fair bit. Uh, and, and in fact, almost tilted the game back in their favor. Uh, you know, if not for, honestly, the the opportunistic finishing that the Canucks were able to sort of get as the game went along, um, maybe maybe it could have been interesting. But the Canucks were always in control. Nonetheless, something to watch for. Pete DeBoer is one of those interesting problem solvers, and once he figures something out, it's on tape. Right? And I'm curious to see, because the Canucks forecheck with Tockett, and in particular their rush defense, has been a real strength of this throughout this five-game road trip, or five-game win streak, excuse me, and throughout his tenure, the Canucks have really been solid uh, uh, in terms of not giving up the sorts of rush chances that were, you know, the the death of them yeah. for much of the season. Um, and I, I sort of one thing that I did wonder about after that second period is is this sort of, you know, you get a new coach, you start implementing new things. It's like moves counter moves, right? Yeah. So that that's sort of how the NHL works these days. Um, DeBoer yesterday, I wonder if he, even though he lost, I wonder if he came up with the first counter move, and it's something to watch for. See if other teams copy that in the in the next three games. And that's part of, that's always part of coaching, right? Teams are yep. going to figure out solutions. That's what they try to do. It's and up then to you, you finish then to figure out, to okay, that. if they're going to do this, then here's what we're going to counter with. That's just part of the process. Yeah, and that's going to be something that Rick talk, and I think especially going into next year, more than the remainder of this year, right, when teams are really serious about, hey, we need to win these games early in the season against the Canucks. That'll be something to monitor. But I will say, I mean, the second period was Dallas's clear strongest period yeah. of that game. And, and then, then the Canucks, Canucks came out and won it. Well. Yeah, they in did. In the third period. They played well uh, in the third. So that really well. speaks it, well to that ability to adjust event, even in-game. It's amazing how different like the yeah, I mean, pace they, of these games They are. played really low event, careful hockey in the third period, but were able to generate some dangerous chances on the rush. Like, that's a really good way to close out a game that you're leading in yeah. against a talented team. Against if you can replicate team, that. Against a talented team with no legs, right? Like, that's the key. Like, how what do these games look like when you blow a schedule win, right? It's like either the goalie saves it or you make too many mistakes, right? Like, those are the two things that will cost you the game. Canucks avoided both, right? The Canucks... Punished the goalie when they had, punished Murray when they had against the grain opportunities. 
Breezebois, what a great story that is. And they didn't make mistakes, right? Like, aside from the Di Giuseppe penalty late in the second. That was the only one that was, like, really unfortunate. Uh, this texter comes in. Deaf taxes and Breezebois in a Canucks jersey are the only certainties in this life. Shout Truly out to Guillaume Breezebois. Unbelievable. Shout out to Guillaume Breezebois. First NHL goal uh, almost eight years after being drafted by the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, I-, I did want to talk a little bit about... Brock Besser as well. Finishes with three assists, and even beyond, you know, sometimes you end up with three assists, but you didn't necessarily have that noticeable a game. Even beyond the score sheet and the production from Brock Besser, I thought that was pretty clearly his best game of the season. And, you know, he just looked more active, more impactful on the game in a a two-way manner. And, You know, he's been productive, obviously, all year when you look at the raw point totals, especially under Rick Tockett, or I guess I shouldn't say especially, but it's continued, it's maintained under Rick Tockett. I do wonder where this goes with Brock Besser and how much, one, the continued production down the stretch, but also if he just is more noticeable, looks more engaged, looks more impactful, looks like a better player, how much that changes the conversation with his trade value in the summer and how much it changes, if at all, the Canucks' willingness to keep him around versus viewing him as a problem to be solved, right? Like, because there's the one, it's easy to say, well, hey, if he's scoring, then he's a better trade asset. That could be true. But is he also a player that it's like, well, hold on. Why are we trying to move heaven and earth to get rid of this player if he's productive and he's helping us? 45 points, 58 games, cap dump, right? Like that's, the league is so wild now where it's like, uh, you know, I had someone tell me about Beauvillier on Twitter, right? They're like, I'm glad he looks like a 20 goal guy and not a cap dump. And it's like. This is the contemporary NHL. There's a lot of guys who are both at the same time, yep. right? What I liked about Besser's game wasn't the assists, and it wasn't the post that he hit with a sort of vintage wrist shot, overpowering a set goaltender the way he can do when he's on his game. It was the battles that he was winning along the wall, right? It was the way that he was carrying the puck assertively. Um, he had pace. And he won battles, and that's been the part of his game that has been far below expectation this year, right? Like, the production's been there, actually, particularly when you account for, you know, how rarely he's been on power play one relative to some mm-hmm. of the other wingers that Vancouver considers to be in their top six, you know, with the exception of Connor Garland. Uh, when you look at his ice time with Elias Pettersson versus the ice time that, like, Ilya Mikheyev and... Andre Kuzmenko and Anthony Beauvillier have had with Elias Pettersson and how that warps production because Pettersson's unbelievable. So I think if Besser's able to show that two-way game, and again, not down the stretch, but next season, if he's still on this team, yeah, that's what's going to matter. It, it, when Besser is a useful two-way piece, then he can provide value. This season he hasn't been, or at least not nearly enough. He hasn't had enough games where he plays like, you know, that that confident style, that 2021 version yeah. of Besser, which was like the wall guy version, the passer version, right? Not not necessarily well, the, the sniper version. That's the thing, because as much as you can say, well, it's not so much about the point production and the assist for Besser, it's about the things you're talking about, the winning the battles, carrying the puck. 
he is a good playmaker. He has that in his oh yeah in his skill set to be he's, a good playmaker. He's also tech typically been really strong along the wall. It just hasn't happened. For and him you this hear year. this idea kind of well, he's not scoring and he's a goal scorer, therefore he's not valuable. He's not helping you. But he does have other things that can help you, right? He can still be a productive offensive player even if his shot isn't finding the back of the net because he does. He is a good playmaker. He has these other capabilities. And so I think that's the key with Besser is, okay, look, it's one thing if the goals dry up, but you have to be doing those other things, which you have a history of doing to continue being productive, to continue helping your team win. So one thing I think, too, that's worth remembering, right, is I feel like there's this habit that we get into in this market where a player gets really hot, red hot. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the way they're discussed hits this like level that is unfair. They're that they're not actually at right because hockey will fool you. I was listening to Sat and Dan yesterday. Mm-hmm. Well, I was listening to Sat and tolerating Dan anyway. <laughs> and Dan's on your side now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I also love Reach. I just like to yeah. do bits. Um, and there were like texters texting in, dropping Panarin comps on Andre Kuzmenko. And I'm just like, guys, that's an MVP-level player. Yeah. That's not a fair comparison for Kuzmenko. I think about the JT Miller was the best player on this team stuff. It is unfair to the player because then when they inevitably don't meet it, it's like, oh, they're they're then they get carved. Then they get carved. No, no, no. They were like, they're still really good. They're still good. It's just they didn't get to that height again. So I sort of look at Besser, and and I I remember I I remember telling Travis Green this. I, I I sort of look at Besser as like a Thomas Tatar type, okay? Big-bodied, not the fastest guy, complimentary top six winger, right? But but top six with a bullet, right? Like, this is a guy who, if you look at his career scoring rates, is good for 25 goals and almost 60 points per 82, and he's played 382 games in his career, so it's not like we're talking about a small sample of games. He's sustained a really high level of scoring over a lot of NHL games, and he's 26 years old. Like, Okay, so is he overpaid by a million and a half? Yeah, probably. In this in this environment, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But that's still a really good player. That's still a player who can contribute meaningfully on a really good team. And it's when Besser gets held up to, in my view anyway, the expectation that he's going to be a star winger as opposed to a really good one where that gap kind of hits. And And, you know, I think this is worth – keeping in mind when we talk about Kuzmenko too, right? Like Kuzmenko's a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. Fans have fallen in love with the floppy hair and the smile and the unbelievable array of deeks and finishes. Fair enough. He's amazing to watch. He's done a few things that I've never seen before over the course of the season. But is Kuzmenko a guy who you could remove from Pedersen's line and he'd drive elite production for his own line? Elite? No. High end? Can he be the offensive engine on a on a really good second line? I could. I don't think it's out of the question. Now, where's the cutoff for really good? But could he be the best offensive player on a good second line? Yeah, I think he could be. I think he's shown that. He hasn't shown that. He absolutely he's has been extremely not shown productive. That. Now, your point is no, that he hasn't shown it away from Elias Pettersson. He hasn't shown it away from Elias Pettersson. But we talked. I talked about this last week on the show. I think like Elias Pettersson hasn't been great away from Andre Kuzmenko this year either, right? Like they're bringing. He's out, still been productive. They're bringing out the best of each other. It's similar numbers, man. Like honestly, it really is. It's it's surprising when you look at the drop off that Pettersson has had away from Andre Kuzmenko. Not on a goals for basis. That's what I'm no, saying. No, but in like, like a points per sixty 
based, like an individual point production from Elias, for Elias Patterson. Yeah, it, is, I mean, it has dropped off. They're complimentary, right? Like there's a type of top six forward who gets extra value on a team that they're on because they're the perfect fit with that team's best player. Yeah. And for me, that's the tier that Kuzmenko should probably be placed in, right? It's it's not Alex Burroughs-like because he's not a defensive-type player, but he amplifies something that Pedersen does by himself, which is converts at an outrageous rate, right? Like, Pedersen, we've talked about this. Pedersen is a time machine. He turns the <laughs> clock back to when goalies were five foot six and smoked at intermission, and all of a sudden everyone has an 850 save percentage when Pedersen's on the ice, and Kuzmenko helps drive that because... He's really good at getting open. He's really good at getting open in the blue paint, right? He has a phenomenal shot on his own, and he gets stick on puck from half an inch above the goal line and is, you know, he's passed more pucks into the net than anyone I've ever seen. <laughs> and I watched the Sedin Twins play for 15 years. So, you know, that's high praise. But for me, that that means we're talking about a guy who, you know, I would put in that, like, I, I often call them a heavy press, like a Zach Hyman or a or a Michael Bunting type, right? Yeah, a guy except, who compliments your star. Except he, uh, he does it in a very different except way. Except he does it helps. in a but yeah. but a complimentary top six forward for me is sort of how I would view Kuzmenko at this point. And I think it, I think I get a little nervous when fans are throwing words like elite or Panarin comp or <laughs> what have oh, you around. Yeah. Like that's that's just not fair to the player beyond because, anything because you set him up to get ground down, yeah. which again is what happened to JT Miller this year. Where all of a sudden, like, the expectation is that JT Miller is A, a center. Jury's still out, right? B, this team's best player. Well, he's not, right? Um, and C, like, a superstar. A genuine yeah. NHL superstar, which, you know, he's never been at any point in his career. Like, he, he, he just hasn't. JT Miller is a really good complimentary first-line player, right? And, and he's been at that level again this season. You know, 75 to 80 points. Offensive driver, exceptional on the power play. With, you know, a two-way game that can come and go a little. Certainly certainly comes and goes as he moves position. Like, that's a reasonable expectation. And I wonder how much of the criticism he's... Like, a lot of it was... Well, hold on. Miller was legit at his lowest level as a Canuck for the first part of this season. Yeah, he was. We, you know what I mean? It wasn't like... If at he had center. Re- if he had reverted to like, the 2019-2020 level... But he was, a, he was a winger then. Sure. Right. But what I'm saying is, like, that was the... Worst that JT Miller has played in a Canucks uniform. Only at center, though. Only at center, though. The moment they moved him to wing, he was fine. Yeah, he was. No, not in terms of uh, in terms of five on five production. He wasn't. Not really. Yeah. Well, that hasn't, you know what I mean. That hasn't been there all season. Yeah, it's but it's starting been, to come back. It's been a lot better. He he has when looked, he's been on the wing. Yes, it has been a lot better when he's been in the wing. But you're starting to see it come back a little bit under Target mm-hmm. at center. So I like I I don't think it's just. I don't think the JT Miller story is just that he reverted to his previous form early in the season. Like, that was lower than yeah, we okay. become accustomed to. But, you know but, what I mean? It, but I also think it was a product of unreasonable expectations, right? Like, I think the perception gap with Miller was he'd been set up to be this team's best player and a superstar. I think that's part of it, right? And, and then when he and then when yeah. he hit a level, you're right. A you're guy right, coming 15% off. 15% lower than what, what he's usually been at. It was like, wow, this is ridiculous. What's going on here? Um, so, you know, I think the, I think again, we do this thing. It, it makes sense to try and figure out what a player is and not get fooled by their low moments or their high moments. Mm-hmm. That's sort of how I try to approach it. Like find a baseline that, that, that's firm, um, as, as a way of grasping onto things. Cause hockey is so variable that it is very easy to get fooled and have one take one year 
JT Miller's this team's best player. Something this organization, like the management of this team was saying, right? There's no way anyone thinks that now, right? Like no one would well, no, say everyone he's... knows it's Elias Pedersen. But like, but everyone, everyone knows. It's but Elias everyone Patterson. should have known that last year, right? And it's it, I mean, Petey went through the same thing just on the low ebb. Yeah, this guy can't even play in the league. What like remember the inbox? Remember how oh, yeah. mad people were? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I, I again, I think it's helpful to have that. I think Besser's been poorly served by this perception that he should be performing at a star level when, you know, for me, I just think he's a complimentary second line guy. And that's great. That's fine. That's super useful. And I think it is important from a management perspective not to get locked into the idea of, again, like this guy's a problem that we have to solve, right? Be open to the idea that he could be a productive, helpful player for you. Now, having said that, we've talked so much about the inefficiency of how their cap is allocated to the guys on the wings. And the thing is, it's not just cap. It's not just cap space that's inefficient. Like, they just have a logjam of guys, of people, of players on the wings. They already, right now, either under contract or team control RFAs, have eight, like, clear-cut, no doubt about it, NHL guys on the wings for next year, right? Like, Kuzmenko, Bovillier, Garland, Besser, Mikheyev, Podkolzin, Joshua, Hoaglander, who's an RFA. We know how much Talkett loves Phil DiGiuseppe. Like, they they have uh, Vitaly Kravstov, who could figure into the mix. They just signed Aiden McDonough, right? They have so many guys that are going to need playing time in some way. You probably do have to move someone. As much as I'm on team run it back, and I am on team run it back, I also understand there's just too many bodies on the wings for it to really make sense here. But what I would just like to see is the process be a little bit different than, well, we've already decided we have to move Garland and Besser, so we're going to do everything we possibly can to move those guys, because Connor Garland's playing really well right now as well. His 5-on-5 scoring is back close to what it's normally been in his career under Rick Tockett. He had a couple assists. I really like what he's doing on the forecheck, and Garland is a guy who is you know not exactly getting star line mates to play with, but is still finding a way to be really productive. I put it out there on Twitter. I like... I, I know there's this idea, wow, Bovillier's come in and he's fit so well with Pedersen and Kuzmenko. He has the same number of five-on-five points since he's been here as Garland or Besser, right? Like, they've all been pretty productive. is playing with Pedersen and Kuzmenko, which gives him a huge leg up. Just, like, don't get caught in this trap that because is having a, you know, shooting percentage hot streak playing with your best player, that all of a sudden he's way more valuable than Garland and Besser. But he's way better than Garland and Besser. And we can't move this guy, but we have to move the other two. Like, yeah, don't butter if your he's, own bread. If he's, easy to, if he's easy to move, do that. Explore that. Because guess what? Besser and Garland are good players. I, and I hope as much as it is down the stretch and these games are hard to judge and all that, like, if there's a lesson you can learn, just remind yourself, oh, yeah, these guys are good, productive NHL players. <laughs> they're, they're not They're not guys who are on the cusp of washing out of the league at this point. 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, GM meetings down in Florida wrapped up today. Some interesting takeaways. Sean Gentili from The Athletic was on the ground covering them in Florida. He will join us next. It's Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Big opinions and good bets. It's the People Show with Big Nazar. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 6. 50. It's Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance, live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you. 
in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Sean Gentilly of The Athletic is going to join us momentarily here. Uh, We were just talking in the first segment about uh, the Canucks winger situation, and this text comes in. They will buy out Garland. Watch. That's what. That's really what I'm trying to prevent. In any the 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 tiny, tiny, tiny amount of influence I might have, don't buy out Connor Garland. Garland's don't played, do it. Garland's been a really big driver, I think, of this little little run they're on. Having there's been so many shifts, it was actually really noticeable. What was the game on Saturday against Ottawa? It like Garland had two or three shifts where like he's driving in the offensive end for that entire line. Like, as they churned that game away from Brady Kachuk, who spent five minutes stealing everybody's lunch money before the Canucks found their footing, Garland layering shifts of pressure in, in on, on the Senators, you know, because they'd come out with Pedersen and he'd do it. They'd come out with Miller and he'd do it. But then they'd come out and it's like Garland, Amon, Joshua, and like, we all know who's driving offensively on that trio. And it worked. It worked. Like, it's not easy to find... You know, on a, what 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 is Connor Garland on a good team? He might be like uh, in that classic Phil Kessel yeah, role, the third although line, he's not as good as Phil Kessel, but the third line offensive driver. But like, yeah, the 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 X factor offensive piece who can play in your bottom set, like that might be his his uh, future. That's still a useful piece. Uh, now joining us, as mentioned, he writes about the NHL for the Athletic, and he was in Florida covering the NHL general manager meetings. Uh, he is Sean Gentilly. Sean, thanks as always for joining us. Uh, how was Florida this week? Fellas, I am still in Florida at the Thomas Drance Memorial Palm Beach Airport, sitting by the gate right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a thrill for Ho- you. Hopefully in better shape than you were at the uh, 2015 NHL entry draft. I smoked less cigarettes this time for sure. Yeah. I'll, 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 I'll oh man. So, uh, GM meetings wrapped up today. Batman spoke. What was your kind of biggest picture overall takeaway from uh, from the meetings over the last few days? Well, from kind of a U.S. centric standpoint, uh, this this stuff that I really wanted to know about was what's going on with regional sports networks in the states because that's been a that's been a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, cruising, it's a sports wide problem, really. Going the big big four leagues, WNBA, you name it, they're scrambling now because of some issues with Valley Sports, and there's another kind of outlying issue with it with, with AT and T Sports. So I, I wanted to wanted to get some clarity on that because that that affects a whole lot of different fan bases, and I feel like that's sort of what Gary's uh, a big part of what Gary's you know focus was on today. But you know the overall vibe from meetings is you know that. There weren't a ton of huge changes. They're talking about maybe expanding coaches' challenges for the next for next season to include uh, friendly fire high sticks and puck over glass, which is you know not the not the sexiest topic ever. And they're and they're also talking about you know figuring out a way to more consistently call penalties uh, for fights after that, that occur after clean hits. Those seems like those are the two biggest things on on uh, the GM's minds, and, and Gary touched on them. Uh, just kind of generally, also had to send sale updates. Uh, just some, you know, kind of minor, minor housekeeping stuff down down here. Even, even though it was, it was a busy three days, but there wasn't some huge outlying, you know, 
big picture capital I issue that they were dealing with. The the regional sports network thing is really interesting. And you said, you know, from a, yeah. an American point of view, and I guess there's two parts of it, right? There's like the viewer experience part, which obviously is a, is an American thing, but then there's also just the potential salary cap implications, which affects everyone, mm-hmm. all 32 franchises. And that's the part that I, I can't really get a handle on. You know, you hear a lot of people say, well, it could be an issue down the line, but do you have any sense of like, when it could be an issue what kind of what like what has to happen for the real nightmare scenario to return because or, or to to come to fruition because what i've seen is kind of a lot of concern but not necessarily a lot of like here's what it would look like do you kind of have any sense of where this story could be going and how it might impact the cap and when if so it's funny because you have two different parent companies that are dealing with rsn troubles right now right you have diamond mm-hmm. sports a diamond, which runs Valley Sports, which is the provider for I believe twelve of the twelve of the of, of the NHL's teams, and then you have AT and T Sports now, which is a subsidiary of of uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, which is the other one. They, for for all intents and purposes, you know they're they're in charge of of two at this point. It, it gets a little it gets a little convoluted, but the teams that are affected in that, uh, as far as AT and T Sports now are concerned, are Pittsburgh and, and Vegas, right? And I think so Seattle, in, too. It, Seattle actually isn't. Oh, okay. They own – it's more of – they. it's more that they almost license the AT&T Got Sportsnet it. Okay, okay. Uh, name. They actually own a, a decent a decent chunk of that of that mm. network itself, which it, which I think went into, went, went into effect a couple years ago, right? So it, it gets a little convoluted. But the two teams affected most acutely are – with the AT&T stuff are Pittsburgh and Vegas. And it really is kind of different scenarios – when you compare Diamond to, to AT&T Sportsnet, because Valley Sports and Slash Diamond, they want to keep this, they want to keep this asset, you know, as they try to come out of, you know, the the planned bankruptcy. Like they they're they're trying to pay their rights fees, you know, they're trying to not basically default on the on the broadcast rights 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 for these teams because they realize, you know, moving forward they they have it kind of labeled as a as a valuable asset. AT&T Sportsnet is different. Like they're done. Warner discovery just wants to divest themselves totally from you know they they're getting out of the rsn game so on march 31st they're just straight up not paying their rights holders fees to pittsburgh or vegas and that's and when that happens you know it's like whatever you don't you you don't pay your car payment or or whatever and, and your car gets repossessed well that's what's happening with uh, Pittsburgh and Vegas is uh, local local broadcast right so it reverts back to them they're free to shop shop them and do as they wish but for the time being you know they're going to find some way to produce games in April in the first round, first round of the playoffs and then move on but no it is it's it's a major it's a major major issue if, if for those teams individually and for the league overall because you're talking about Pittsburgh you know how much is their are uh, yearly were they getting from AT&T Sports and I know you know, twenty million, twenty-five million. I, I think I think that would be a fair estimate, and that's money that's out of the kitty now. It's a, it's a big deal. Well, so, and it sounds like Diamond will file for bankruptcy by Friday if they haven't done so mm-hmm. already. And yeah, they have filed. Yeah, yeah. And and my understanding is once that happens, then it's a little bit out of their hands in that the creditors mm-hmm. will go through mm-hmm. and determine like, hey, this this rights deal previously negotiated is too high it becomes a liability we have to go back and renegotiate so like literally like literally as i was as i was going on the phone with you guys i got an alert on my phone saying that the texas rangers you know the, the mlb team are going to try to get out of their deal with valley so, right. so that's clearly an avenue for 
for these individual rights holders. Absolutely. Yeah. So it, it's, it's something. And so Bettman said there'd be a $1 million raise on the cap, but open to discussing the issue with the PA. Yeah. Um, good luck with that, given the escrow uh, implications. So, mm-hmm. so we're living through at least one more year of flat cap, but do you get the sense, talking to people around the business, that RSN pain could defer how many years we're waiting before we're seeing meaningful lifts in the upper limit? That was kind of the question that I couldn't quite get answered, you know, because I, I think people are still, I, I think there's still so much uncertainty over what's going to happen, especially with, you know, especially with, with on the Bally AT&T and, and the things that I, I don't think they can say meaningfully, like how much money is going to go in or out of the system because of that. But so, yeah, that's sort of like, they're kicking that can down the road in terms of their revenue projection. So as far as the stuff for this year, it's all, fine and dandy they're saying that they're but that they're you know their projections are now like even farther beyond the robust ones that they sent before and they think they're going to only have a hundred that there's only going to be a hundred million worth of the escrow to pay back uh, after the season as opposed to the 150 that they're projecting you know most recently so yeah everything you know to to hear to hear the folks from the league tell it is like they're saying well everything's going great gary said today we're okay we, we came back from COVID really really strong and that seems to be true because, again, they're outstripping their own projections. But there is like that little bit of a black cloud hanging over the revenue forecast because of the uh, because of the RSN deals. Absolutely. I wish I could bet against optimistic projections of the cap raising. Like I wish there was like over unders set every year by Vegas because betting against <laughs> cap increases since 2014 would have done very keep, well. We're gonna keep hearing like every year for the next however many. Like no, it's definitely. Definitely going to raise four and a half next season. Definitely <laughs> next season. Watch, watch, watch. It'll be 2026 or something, and we'll still be having the same discussion. Well, and, that way. and Bettman comes out and addresses the salary cap situation. And, you know, this, what I'm about to say, I think applies to a lot of what Gary Bettman says. But in this in particular, it's so clear that he's not talking to the fans. Like, he's making public statements mm-hmm. for the benefit of ownership and the mm-hmm. PA, right? Like, that's who his audience is. It's clearly positioning for negotiations given that is there anything that we the public can really take from what he had to say or is it just this is all going to be sorted out between him and him and marty walsh at a, at a later point <laughs> is uh he gary went out of his way to say at the, at the end of his at the end of his presser today you know pointing out very specifically that uh it's marty walsh's first day yes, on the job yes. is, is, is an nhlpa executive director so yeah, that's this is after talking about escrow and the cap, and you know, hope, hoping to have that discussion with the, with Marty after after Gary welcomed him into the NHL family today. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think that's a coincidence. I, I, I feel like I feel like there was some uh, intentionality, but between some of the topics Gary Gary hit this afternoon, playoff format, we're never going to see it change, are we? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. That was that was one of the funnier. <laughs> it was like kind of funny in a in a Bettman sort of way where basically the way he answered the question when someone brought it up he was like everybody has preferences right like but with the implication being like well this is how I like to do it so you know whatever <laughs> like the GMs were, all, were I will say they were all on the same page they were basically speaking with the same voice as you expect uh, from the, from these kind of things and they're saying you know yeah one one through eight you know yeah so you know it's is it better? Is it worse? I don't know. You look at the standings, and there it would, you know, the playoff matchups would basically be the same if if we were on one system or the other, like yada yada. So they're they're on the same page with that. And then 
Bettman clearly he's he's just not he he thinks every he's he's fine with it. So you know so it goes. What is behind the attachment to it? Like, not that it's the biggest deal changing it back to one one uh, one versus eight or or doing it this way, but why is the support for it from the NHL so steadfast in in your view? I think there's still just like that hang up on intradivisional rivalry yeah. because that's something that they gassed up for so long and it worked out so well initially. I I think that's I think that's a big part of it. Was right the first handful of years we we had this system, you know, that was put, it was put in place, you know, maybe not entirely to match up Sidney Crosby and Alexander Ovechkin every year, but that was a big part of it. <laughs> and they delivered. Those those series were great. We got a bunch of pen, great Pens caps series out of, out of the whole deal over over the years, and it worked it worked the way that it was supposed to, right? So I think there's some level of you know attachment to the system because it did work out the way that they planned initially, and, and that so many people in the league do still put a ton of stock into into divisional rivalries, whether it's whether it's Pens caps or you know whether Rangers, whatever Rangers Flyers or or any of the any of the New York you know, intra interdivisional stuff. People from the league like it. So here we are. In conversation with Sean Gentili of the of the Athletic, talking uh, GM meetings and also some around the league stuff here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet six fifty. And uh, you know, you mentioned Sidney Crosby and the matchups, the playoff matchups with Alex Ovechkin. I, I did want to ask you about the Pittsburgh Penguins, who kind of come out of the deadline as one of the more interesting and maybe even controversial teams in the NHL, given how their fans felt about what they did at the trade deadline. Now they still look like very strong favorites to hold on and make the playoffs. They've won seven of their last 10. What does the off ice future for the Pittsburgh Penguins hold? You know, whether it's Ron Hextall's future, Brian Burke's future beyond Mm -hmm. this season. An interesting thought. I mean, Fenway sports group owns the Pittsburgh Penguins. They have for, you know, a little bit less than a year and a half now. And they gave Mike Sullivan a contract extension after last season. Did not get one. Ron Extall, Brian Burke. So we'll see. I think there's decisions to be made about those guys' future that I would imagine hinges on how the next how the next couple months go. Sullivan less so. Like the guy's got whatever, four years or five like enough years on this contract now not to count, right? So you know, FSG's thrown in with the coach. I, I don't think he's going anywhere. But yeah, if there's um you know, if, if if Fenway Sports wants to make a change, and again, they did not hire Ron Hextall, and they did not hire Brian Burke, if they want to make a change in the, in the offseason, like, the contract situation basically will line up, you know, will we'll, we'll make it easier for them. I think both those guys have one year left. Hextall certainly does with a team option after that. And if, if they want to make a change, like, you know, they'll have they'll, they'll have the option. It'll be, it'll be easy enough for them, I'll say that much. Do you get a sense of what the industry expects down in Florida on the Penguins job, how high stakes the next couple months are for this group? Not overly. I, I think I'm, I'm based in Pittsburgh. So I, the sense I get, you know, about over that franchise really, it's more just from, yeah, from the day for, from the day to day. And I think there's still, you know, a certain amount of maybe not confusion, but like there, there's a lack of clarity, I think on, how involved FSG is with the day-to-day management of the team and how involved they wish to be moving forward. Like there isn't a dedicated, you know, uh, C-suite level person who's dedicated at, at, at FSG, who's dedicated to the Pittsburgh Penguins, right? There's people who run Liverpool and there's, and there's obviously a whole phalanx of people who are involved with the Red Sox. 
but like I, they're not absentee owners, but I, the presence isn't too strong either. So I think a lot of people are left are kind of left guessing as to what you know the plan from the top is. We have a better idea of what Ron Hexall is trying like trying to do now, it, relative to maybe a month ago. But I, I think his bosses, bosses, bosses are still, you know, it remains to be seen because we we just haven't seen that much of them around. What about the Philadelphia situation? Uh, you're based in Pennsylvania. Uh, we know that there's a vacancy there uh, now, at least at the president level and, and presumably uh, at the GM level uh, pending a further evaluation. Um, but how different are the Flyers going to look directionally, do you think? And, and what's the chatter been like around that club down yeah. in Florida? So the hey, we're getting, getting a courtesy phone call. Here. <laughs> um, no, the the vibe the, the vibe around the well, first off, it's been a weird weird couple of days for the Flyers because they you know yes, mm. Danny Briere is the interim GM. The assumption here and the vibes surrounding everybody, league affiliated and otherwise, is that he's gonna eventually take over the chair permanently, right? That the interim tag is not going to be affixed to him all the, all that long. The guy's behaving as if he is, you know, a long a long-term permanent general manager. Well, then we got a situation with his son who plays at Mercyhurst in in Erie PA. You know, he got caught on video kicking a unoccupied wheelchair down a flight of stairs. It's obviously a horrendous thing to do, disaster. But that but that, you know, the timing on that was bizarre. Like we're we're not even sure. We, we it's possible we didn't see Danny Briere at the hotel today, right? Like he might have left early because people were rightfully, you know, angry about about the situation with his son. So he so he split. But be that as it may, you know, the vibe here is absolutely that he's going to be the long term uh, guy on that job. And it's you know, I don't know, man. He he got he got left a mess. There's not not a lot of expiring contracts on on the books there. Chuck Fletcher spent a lot of money last year, whether it's Tony D'Angelo or Rasmus Ristolainen during the season before that. So, you know, Danny Breer is saying the right things, you know, as, as far as, you know, he's, he's not allergic to a rebuild. He's clearly willing to use the word, which Chuck Fletcher wasn't for a while. But, you know, it's easier said than done, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Sean, always appreciate the time. Uh, glad you had fun in Florida. We'll talk soon. Absolutely, fellas. Good talking to you. That is Sean Gentilly of Safe the Travels Athletic, by. who is uh, departing from Florida after being down there to cover the NHL GM meetings. And yeah, not the most eventful general manager meetings. I know you know Gary Bettman kind of uh, shut down a little bit or threw cold water on the expansion talk as well today, saying it's not even close to a front burner issue for the league, even though there's interest. Not any real meaningful updates on the, uh, the sale of the Ottawa Senators. I think the big thing that people were looking forward to is just some sort of commentary on where the salary cap is going. As you said, Batman says uh, more likely than not that it'll be a $1 million increase, although he did leave the door open to negotiate with the players. But as you kind of alluded to, uh, you that's know, not an easy it, negotiation. It, isn't it wild? Like ratings are down. RSNs are defaulting. Mm -hmm. We can't seem to go a month without there being like a horrendous story involving someone related to the hockey community. The league is rolling back Pride Nights mm -hmm. almost across the board. And it's like a slow general manager's meetings and everyone's like, status quo, everything's fine. Like at what point are we the well, dog meme? But not only that, it's like 
Like, really? Everything's fine? Well, but hold on. But it's also like, we're going to make this incredible sale of the Ottawa Senators, and there's all this expansion interest. And and the NHLPA has a new head. Yeah. But you know what I mean? It's it's It doesn't seem to have affected the bottom line of the business in any appreciable way. At least not that we can tell right now. They're not, you know what I mean? Like, there's the possibility that, hey, we might actually be able to negotiate a larger salary cap rise. I don't think it's going to happen, but it's not completely out of the question. And no. you've got this, like, groundswell of interest from billionaires across North America on joining the club. It's a really interesting dynamic, and I would love to kind of explore that more at some point. Like, what's behind all of a sudden, like, hey, these guys in Atlanta want a team. Houston wants a team. Quebec City wants a team. All these people are lining up well, by the Ottawa it's Senators. It's great business. It's great business. It's a hard-capped league, right? And um, the value keeps going up. Like the the Vegas Golden Knights were what five hundred million, something like that. Yeah, and and Seattle, I think Seattle six fifty. Yeah, um, Senators might go for a billion. Like the Canucks were purchased for like three hundred fifty million, and that was fifteen years ago. It's not like a, a different world ago. And that franchise sits on a ton of some of the most valuable real estate on the planet mm -hmm. in downtown Vancouver. I mean, like, I don't think it's outrageous to suggest that that team has, like, the Vancouver Canucks have gone up in value six or seven times. I mean, that's that's like getting to the $2 billion range. Ten years ago, the, the Florida Panthers were bought for about $200 million. $200 million. Yeah, it's a great deal. Like, and especially course, if you so, said when you have the insurance, of course there's interest. When you have the insurance of a, but it's just an interesting dichotomy. Well, and, is what and I'm you, saying, and you, right? and you, and you're able to write off your losses. Yeah, and, you know, like come on. Of it's, course, I, I see. I, I don't. The fact that the value of these properties keeps going up should not distract from the significant business challenges that the league itself has. It's like they're benefiting from a wave of factors outside of them. And it, and it feels like everyone's like, great job, league's healthy. But, but I there think are it, significant issues that this specific league has. But I think it helps explain maybe some lack of urgency from the league. Because if, if you're an owner, you're like, well, I can sell for five sure. times what I paid for it any day I want. Totally. So why am I concerned? Oh, ratings are down a little bit? Yeah, I'd prefer them to be up. But if my franchise has tripled in value in the last eight years, it's yep. hard to get too worked up about it. You know what I mean? Totally. It's like, all right, well... I don't really care. Yeah, playoff format, keep it the same. Sure, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's that's what I, that, I think that's what I'm trying to capture is a passive approach might not a passive approach might not be grappling fully with the extent to which interest in this sport among casual fans in the United States is falling behind that of those of that of the other major leagues including MLS by the way including F1 including like yeah. leagues that weren't real rivals like if, if the you, idea of a big four if you, the NHL is fading in that race if you were tasked with explaining why they shouldn't be complacent right despite rising franchise value you'd be pointing to the counterfactual like yes nhl franchise values have gone up a lot but so have they in every sport and is it possible that you could actually increase them dramatically more if you did some of these different things like don't be satisfied with the windfall returns you've already had could you take a different route and get even more impressive returns on your investment i think that is the tack you would have to take but it's understandably difficult uh, i think to get that buy-in when you're already rewarding those types of financial rewards uh 650 650 is the dunbar lumber text line we'll get back into the canucks specific conversation uh, yeah just like consider that in 2010 right or or roughly right 2010-2012, Golden State Warriors, 450 million. <laughs> 
Toronto Raptors, four hundred million, right? Yeah. Um, Washington Wizards, five hundred fifty million. Phoenix Suns just went for four billion. Yeah. So like, there's a totally different scale of appreciation in that industry than what NHL owners are benefiting from. You know, yeah. good, good ain't great. Yeah, that's it. That that would be the argument you make. Hey, you have good right now. Let's try to push for great. But mm-hmm. we'll see if that ever actually takes hold. Uh, more Canucks talk coming up. It is Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strantz. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota All-Star team. AvenueMachinery.ca, DouglasLakeEquipment.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.com. Net. So yesterday, the Canucks uh, played their 20th game under Rick Tockett. They have won five in a row now. I believe they have 11 wins in those 20 games. You know what's funny is their five-on-five form has actually sort of softened over the la- over, over like the, the last five games. games. Yeah, like like all of a sudden you're seeing the scoring chances for drop and. You know, they're, like, on the wrong side of 50. Like, a lot of the improvement that we'd seen and we're talking about is starting to trend down just as the Canucks have a 930 save percentage 5-on-5 five five and a 12% shooting clip and are beginning to win these games. Although I do also wonder if part of that is um, they have the lead, actually, for a little bit now, whereas for so long it, they were constantly playing from behind. That's definitely part of it. Yes. Uh, but anyways, you kind of dig into, you know, 20 games, not the biggest sample, but it's not nothing either. And you have to, you know, always take it with a grain of salt because of the time of the year it is. We'll get to that. We'll hear from Yannick Hansen a little bit later in this segment on that subject. But you can start to kind of dig in to some of what we've seen under Rick Tockett. And the number that stands out to me is in those 20 games, they've controlled basically exactly half of five-on-five scoring chances in those 20 games under Tockett, which is obviously not, you know, that's by definition average around the NHL. Like, it's going to zero out to 50% between all the teams, so they're right at the average across the league. Nothing to get too excited about, but also significantly better than what they were doing under Bruce Boudreaux. So it is, like, meaningful, tangible improvement with all those grains of salt included about the time of year. Totally. And well, and, and we need 10 more games before sure. we're like, hey, that's a predictive sample. Sure. But, but yeah. we're getting close to that. We are. And so, look, I, this is going to be my new – I think this is going to be my new catchphrase for the rest of the year. So run it back. I started the week. I made that argument on Monday. I said it again on Twitter after the game last night. Run it back. You're seeing the improvement you were hoping for. And it's not just, oh, hey, they've won you know 12 or 11 out of 20 games. It's also – they are playing with more structure. They are preventing odd man rushes at a better, uh, you know, at a much better clip. They are controlling a better share of their scoring chances. They're doing all those things you talked about. To me, the evidence just creeps keeps growing that they should, in fact, run it back. And I've talked about it with the defense. Hey, you've created that structure where you can bring in Noah Juleson and Guillaume Brisebois and get decent minutes out of them. I'm seeing it with the wingers now, too, where we looked at 
Brock Besser and Connor Garland as these problems to be solved, but hey, they're producing. They're helping you. They look like the players you were expecting them to be when they got those contracts that they're on right now. So if you're in this situation where you're seeing these meaningful, you know, not not the biggest sample size. I don't want to get ahead of myself here. I'm not saying they're all of a sudden Stanley Cup contenders or that this roster is going to make them Stanley Cup contenders. I'm just saying that management should use these positive results to buy themselves a little bit of time, buy themselves a little bit of patience, the ability to be more careful, to be less reactive, to be less panicked about how they go about improving this team. And for me, as long as the process holds up and we see more games like we saw against Dallas, like I'm going to keep banging that drum. Run it back. Don't 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 panic about making major surgery to this team if you keep getting these results. What I like about this is that your take here, your run it back is consistent with don't stop digging. Right? Because partly what you're saying is no need to keep digging. Yes. You've you've kind of got something here. Um, now, I don't know that this organization can help itself, but uh, you know, I think the digging is inevitable. Excavation at all moments is sort of the MO. And I, even I will admit, like as I, I said in the first segment, you just straight up have too many wingers. You just have too many wingers. Oh yeah, it's still, you, you, there's it's, no way around it. It's still a very strangely built team. Even if they were all making like a million dollars a piece, Bizarrely. you still have too many wingers. You still probably have to trade some of them. That that should be that should be the um, unfinished business slope. Bizarrely built for next season. Um, fundamentally, though, I just don't think this matters at all. Like, big picture, the only thing that I think is being achieved late in the season, in a, in a world where, you know, the Canucks record to this point is still basically consistent with what the Coyotes have managed since Rick Tockett's mm-hmm. been hired, basically consistent with what the Anaheim Ducks have managed since Rick Tockett was hired. The Chicago Blackhawks beat the Boston well, Bruins last night. Last night was a big night for take all March results with a big grain of salt. No kidding. What was it? It was Chicago, Columbus, Arizona. I think did Anaheim win last night too? It was, it was, it was pressures off night. It was yeah. pressures off night. And, and you know, as such, I can't get excited about this. Like the only big picture, the only thing that's happening is the Canucks, you know, reel off these wins is that they're damaging their draft lottery odds. Like that's it. There, there are no stakes involved. And I'm not against fans enjoying the wins. I know there's a lot of people who listen to this show and get mad at their radio when I'm speaking anyway, um, who, you know, work hard, come home, want to have a drink, want to watch the Canucks game, want to relax. And they'd want, rather... Want to see Elias Pettersson do something cool. Right. And and, and uh, Kuzmenko pull a crazy spin pass they've never seen, mm-hmm. and the Canucks power play put pressure on, and at the end of the night, the Canucks win, and they go to bed happy. Right? Like, that's it. That's fine. I've got no problem with that for you. I've got a problem with it personally because I want stakes. Like there's no, this isn't low stakes hockey. This is zero stakes hockey. And I've, I've spent enough time around NHL players talking to NHL players. I've spent enough time working for teams in the, in garbage time of another regular season to know that the people who played this game at the highest level don't really read into this. Before before I queue up Yannick Hansen, though, I want to invite all our listeners, 650-650, that's the Dunbar Lumber text line, text in and let us know, are you reading anything? Anything at all? You can say nothing. You can say something. You can give us a rant. Are you reading anything at all into what the Canucks have achieved, not just with the five-game win streak, but what? They've got 20 games under talking now. No, but they've got... They've got um, Eight wins in their last 11. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, so eight wins in their last 11, that's that's a run here. That's a real run here that the Canucks are on 
Do you read in anything into it, or are you on Team Drance and Team Yannick Hansen? Let's cue up that audio. Well, they're winning, obviously, which is an improvement. Um, Demko came back. Um, again, they've been giving up a lot of shots some of the games, um, but but they are playing better. Um, does that translate into uh, into next year? That's the that's the million dollar question. So again, everything that happens from here on in. I take with a grain of salt um, because we've seen this story before. Um, so, like I said, it's great if they continue down this path, uh, keeps winning, keeps playing well, um, and run the run the gauntlet, if you will, keep winning. Um, I, I'd like that. Um, it, it obviously looks like they're out of the running for, for, for that first overall. So if you can't get that, well, let's see if we can start uh, with the right foot forward going into next year. But again, Come October, nothing that's happening right now really matters. Uh, that's Yannick Hansen, former uh, Vancouver Canuck, of course, who's a regular here on the station. I just imagine you pumping your fist listening to Yannick drop some bombs there, Drancer. Yeah, but it's just consistent with everything I've ever heard from everyone who's played this game at this high level. Right? Like, all of them wait. Team performance when the pressure is on. Like that, that that's what NHL players want and care about. How do you come through when the pressure is on? Like we've seen this team and and actually the Boudreau bump era was a hilarious example of it where the Canucks would get right to the brink of when a game was big and then they'd lose. Right to the brink again where like, oh, if you can beat Ottawa, lose. Mm-hmm. Right? Like and we, and we saw it so many times last year. Right? Like we know that this core can win in garbage time. That's never been the question. What we haven't seen in three years is this team get out of the first month of the season with a shot at doing anything. And that's despite the previous year. Like in 2020, they go on this deep playoff run. What does it mean in 2021? Nothing. 2021, they win a bunch of games down the stretch. What does it win in the next season? Nothing. Boudreaux bump lasted for months. They were a 100-plus point pace team. How many times did we hear that this summer? And what did it mean this fall? Bubkiss, nada, zip. So maybe this will mean something, but I, I, like again, I see some reasonable improvement in in a lot of areas. Rush defense, number one, but doesn't mean anything. I I don't think so. I genuinely think nothing. So I think it means very little, right? And, like we have to see as my and and I want to explain how that relates to my run it back idea, right? Because to me. If there were clear, relatively low-risk ways to go about improving this team, I would be all for it, right? Like, we had a text come in saying, uh, why don't, why shouldn't we want this team to improve the defense? They need to get rid of three contracts, OEL Myers and Besser, or one of Besser and Garland. They need a third-line center and two more defensemen. Why wouldn't they try to do that? And if there was a straightforward way to try to do that, if they were sitting on, you know, $20 million of cap space, if they were sitting on a lot of valuable future assets that they could turn into those players relatively easily and without really damaging their future, then yeah, because you're right. Like, I'm not sitting here. When I say run it back, I'm not sitting here saying this team with Niels Zaman as a third-line center is going to be challenging for the Pacific Division title next year. I understand how far-fetched that is. It's just the reality that it's also going to be really, really hard for them to improve. Like, the options I see for them improving are 
do everything you can to move some bad money, which will probably be tar- hard and probably involve giving up assets or expensive, buying guys yeah. out, hard or expensive or a combination, and then go spend in free agency. Like those, are, that's the avenue I see to improving this team, and I don't think that's going to move the needle that much, and I don't think it's wise to do that. So rather than take that road, why not lean into the th- the things we are seeing right now and hope that they continue over to next year? Because again, like the fact that there's uncertainty about how this team is going to perform next season to me that's another argument for be very very careful how much future pain you inflict to improve the team next year if you're not sure you can get them over the hump you have to be very very wary about going out and trying to buy two top four defensemen in the offseason yeah I mean the problem is is if you're going to be conservative because you're leaning on your structure is that inconsistent and incoherent with having traded a first and a second for Philip Ronick to help you next year? Probably. Like, isn't the logic of that deal contingent on this team taking advantage of the fact that they're now going to have this one-year window where you've got Miller locked up, you've got Demko, you've got Hughes locked up, and you've got Ronick and Pedersen making $11 million combined. A-, a number that's, well, $12 million combined. A number that's poised to jump by... You know, potentially the entire amount of Tyler Myers' expiring contract the next season on, right? Like, aren't they already committed to doing more than that? Let's let's read some of these responses. A hundred percent. There's something to this. The first handful of games under Tockett, um, sorry, he uh, he put his stamp on this roster in the way they play. I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that there's no pressure because there is pressure. There's always pressure in the NHL, especially for a team with so many jobs seemingly at stake. Not not incorrect, by the way. There is pressure on individual can, players. I think it's totally fair to say there's always that certain element of pressure and guys are always going to compete. But there's a, there's a spectrum of pressure as well. Totally. And it's a completely different level than when you're actually in the thick of a playoff race or in a playoff series. Where, so where every wrong. shift is do or die, yeah. every mistake compounds. Uh, where where you lose a game, but it's okay if you win the next four. And like, can you, you know, that it's a it's a it's a different thing for me. But I, I like that text and the point that there is pressure on individual players is a good one. Um, the Tocket bump is the new Bruce bump, which of course was the new bubble. That's what I read into it. Just a bunch of confirmation bias. Theater says Jay in Calgary. I feel like that's like uh, like. Um, I could put those that tweet in in on a, on a bingo card for like things you'd expect me to say. I love <laughs> yeah. it. You could slip it into your next athletic article, practically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Kalen in Saskatoon says, "Not reading anything into this run." Full stop. Show me you can play when it matters, and I'll believe you. That's from Kalen in Saskatoon, and I will say we're getting a lot of that. Right, like this one comes in from Brad from Calgary. Zero. This is the same BS as last year. Teams taking them easy, easy schedule, backup goalies, no pressure, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, I'm definitely Team Drance slash Hanson uh, right now. That's the, from Brad from Calgary. The Stars outright rested players last night and played their backup, having played their starter in Seattle the night before. Right. I mean, that is part of the story if you're paying attention here. Has to be. Has to be. Um, the only thing I read into this latest. Hot stretch, says Jeremy from Souk, is that the organization seems to be in alignment from management to coaching to players. 
That is not something we saw last season, so no wonder it didn't work out with Boudreaux. This can be sustainable because everyone is now on the same page. I think that's a fair comment. And that's part of what I'm getting at when I say run it back. Like, okay, that is a difference you can point to. That doesn't just depend on the fact that it's March and April. It's like, well, hold on. We have our guy. and We're starting to do things the way we actually want to do things. Well, and I want to mention two other factors here. Two things we saw since Tockett came in. What do we see right off the bat? Who's Which player's usage changed the most right when Tockett came in? Who? Phil Giuseppe. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, sorry. Other than other than Rick Tockett's adoptive son, Phil Giuseppe, Riley Stillman started getting very carefully prescribed top four minutes and was traded. Mm-hmm. And JT Miller moved to center full-time for the first little bit, was seeing very few defensive zone face-offs, far less matchup minutes. And we learn on deadline day that the club had indeed been engaged in talks to trade him too. That's a level of alignment. That's a level of where once you're aligned between manager and coach, you can actually work together to engineer value, particularly when the results are secondary, which they have been for the Canucks this season. Yeah, and despite uh, to be. the minutes for uh, for Hughes and Pedersen and Miller, like results are secondary, and Talkett has admitted that. And yet, also they go those guys are playing a ton. I need a drop for my backpack machine, by the way. <laughs> We need like a not the not the weird squeal drop. You don't want that one. Yeah, to we be can it? we can use that if they're ready with it. Um, but uh, oh, <laughs> wow, it was even weirder than I remembered that time. <laughs> I was not oh, expecting that. Oh, oh, uh, that's how I react. Oof. That's Oof. how that's how I react when I'm getting my back pads. What was the context of that? Even I forget. Like, what were you imitating? Like, was it was oh, it the fajitas I, I was... conversation? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, who can even keep track of the idiocy anymore? Um... <laughs> anyone anyone denying that Thatcher Demko biggest trade deadline addition in the league? Anyone anyone think that was a uh... Pretty close. Yeah, although this one comes in from uh, Drance's buddy CJ, who says, uh, we've seen this movie before. Oh, no. Oh, sorry. He's disagreeing. I thought he was saying that it's goaltending steal games. Goaltending is stealing games right now, which as much as I would say Demko is playing really well, other than like maybe the other the game in Dallas, would you say he's stolen a game for them? He played really well last night, made a big stop on Jamie Benn, but I don't look at it as, oh, Demko stole that game. So that's another thing you could look at as different than the Boudreau bump, right? Where like that was Demko. That was Demko, Demko, Demko. Demko's a part of this, but not like, oh man, we'd be hooped if it wasn't for Thatcher Demko. He's not quite like that. I thought he was fabulous last night, though. Yeah, he was really good. There, there's it a... still wasn't a stolen game. No, no, no. It wasn't. But you know what he's playing like? He's playing like he's wrapping he anymore. Oh. <laughs> he's playing like he's wrapped in tape. Like extra sticky tape. The puck's just sticking to him. There is no rebounds. It is all so calm, so composed, so in front of him, so impressive. On the Demko side, Chris and Prince George is reading this. There's only one thing he says to take away from these wins late in the season, in my opinion, and that's that Demko was able to recover and should be expected to be reliable into next it's year. A good take. The rest means zero. I love that take from Chris. Nicely done. One thing, though, that I want to add, one thing, though, that I want to add is this. We're still talking about a goalie who's only played more than 60 games once in his career, right? And that happened, and then he got hurt. And had a significant recovery in the offseason, and then got hurt again two months into the season. 
So while I'm a big Demko believer, I was a big Demko believer in the fall, I'm a big Demko believer today. I do think it's incumbent on this organization to find a way to rely on Demko 55 games a year, which gives you 27 others that you need Mm -hmm. to find wins in. You need to find points in. Because... You know, you're not going to win more than 35 no, you of the can't, fifth. You, like, you can't the plan can't be go like 42 and 13 in Demko games. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, uh, that, so that you only need 10 <laughs> points from the other. Like, you're going to need to be able to at least scramble together 500 in the games mm-hmm. Demko doesn't play. If he plays 60 even, I think you're trending toward irresponsible. I think it has to be... Responsible is a good way of putting it. Like that's kind of what I'm getting at when I say run it back too. Is be responsible, and I think that extends very much to Thatcher Demko, <laughs> and it extends very much to just stop digging. Um, here's another one from Brandon. A good take. Not so much the form, but what they're doing in the American League and the infrastructure being built. I'm more confident that we can plug and play depth call ups and maintain performance. I think this is a huge positive that the best teams have a pipeline of quality replacement players. Yeah, you you need to be able to raise your floor. People forget this, but the greatest Vancouver Canucks season of all time, they used 13 defensemen, right? There were nights where the blue line looked Mm -hmm. like Edler, Erhoff, one of BXA Hamhughes, Sallow Ballard, right? Because Sallow missed half the season, Edler missed half the season, BXA was hurt on occasion, Hamhughes had a head injury at one point during that campaign, and there'd be nights where it would be like three of those guys and then like, Kevin Connaughton and Lee Sweat scored a big game winner. And, you know, Jan Sove played minutes for that team and on and on down the line. Uh, Aaron Rome, the immortal. The Aaron immortal. Rome. Andrew Alberts. You have to have a high floor. You have to have, like, 9 to 13 defensemen capable of doing Noah Juleson stuff. Hey, have we talked enough about how Noah Juleson's good? He threw a wicked hit last oh, night. That was, was awesome. awesome. That so was like good. perfectly timed, like Ed Reed, like waiting for the receiver to get his hands on the ball, and then I'm going to smoke you before you have time to react. It was I, great. I want to get ahead of myself because I'm not saying that he is a full-time NHL player even. I'm not even saying, like, I think this team should build a spot for him on the third pair, right? But pretty fast. He can do more dynamic things with his feet than a lot of other Canucks defensemen who've played games this season. Hits like a truck, works hard. I got nothing bad to say about the guy. I love it. I think there are a lot worse ways to go than finding cheap guys to pair with Quinn Hughes while you're strapped for salary caps. Totally. Cheap, short-term commitments that can that Quinn Hughes has the skill set to make look good. And I'm not saying he's only... like. Juleson plays a part in this as well, just like Shen did, but Hughes can elevate them. Find those guys and plug them next to Quinn Hughes if the dream option isn't out there and, and available for you. Like, man, there are there are much worse ideas that I can think of than that. Oh, one more thing, though. Everyone's talking about Willan, and they should be. He's playing really solid hockey. Breezebois gets the goal. Great mm-hmm. story. Juleson throws the big hit, and I just gave him a lot of praise, and mm-hmm. I think that praise is warranted. We're not talking about the only guy... <laughs> on this Canucks defenseman who I bristle at when I hear him described as a quad A guy, and that's Kyle, Kyle Burrows. And he's the only guy of that group who, like, I think a smart team should be prepared to build a third pair around. Well, like, I think I legitimately think he should be an ev- not just an every, not just on the NHL roster the way he has been in the, on this team for the last few years. Like, I think if you have the right left-handed third pair guy for him right and and ideally that's a guy with like a little bit of size but not a ton of defensive awareness 
right? Like you you want someone who's bigger than Burroughs, mm-hmm. but who's um, going to go marauding a bit. So Burroughs can be like a shorter stay-at-home guy. I legitimately think he's an everyday quality defense defenseman. I think he's been no worse than Vancouver's third or fourth best defenseman all season long. The fact that he's played so few games to me is preposterous. He can play left or right. He just goes around looking for fights, even though he's not the biggest guy, right? Like challenged Austin Watson without a blink of an eye when when he ran at Pedersen. Kyle Burroughs is an everyday quality player. An everyday quality player, period. Well, and the interesting thing about the four guys who've come up and, you know, become regulars on the blue line now is until Guillaume Brisebois signed his extension, they were all without contract, right? And Brisebois was an RFA. Juleson is an RFA. Uh, Burroughs and Willannon are UFAs. And I'm really curious to see, of the remaining three guys, how many are back with the organization next year. Because you can make strong cases for all of them. Now, do you also run into like a... The, the problem is, is their agents can make strong cases Well, and that's the them. thing, right? And if you're Kyle Burroughs in particular, do you look at it as, okay, they're signing Brisebois. If they bring Juleson back, like, do I start to run into a lack of opportunity here at that point, right? So I don't know. It's, it's an interesting place for them to be in with their depth defenseman obviously Breezeball locked up now but I'm gonna be watching who do they bring back of those other three as well to figure in next year from North Creek Dan by the way the one thing I'm reading is that the core of this team that is the players who are going to stick around for better or worse and he puts in brackets Miller or Demko have in in scare quotes that gear that can elevate the team the flip side is that they need to be elite a lot for this team to be good herein lies the issue the roster needs to be improved in low risk ways so North Creek Dan putting a really good spin on the idea of running it back, which is as impressive as Vancouver's elite talent has been, part of what we're seeing too is an over-reliance on them, a usage of them that you can't possibly count on being successful over 82 games. So, you know, as much as you believe in this core, there's still more work to be done and it needs to be done on a knife's edge, right? Like at an extremely... Uh, affordable clip yes. if it's all going to come together. Very, very affordable. Uh, we'll keep that conversation going, plus we'll wrap up the show with 10 minutes of positivity, so keep your text coming in, 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, I should have saved segment. my Juleson Burroughs takes for that. I know, man. You blew it. Ah. What are you doing, pal? 650-650, uh, it is uh, Canucks talk on Sportsnet 650. It is anymore. Oh, it is anymore. Oh, Welcome back. Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650 final segment of the show live from the Kintec studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. We played that clip from Yannick Hansen uh, in the last segment talking about how he's not buying into the results, what he's seeing from the Canucks under Rick Tockett until he sees it next year and Producer Dom very fairly asked me to mention that. Specifically, that was from The People Show, where Yannick Hansen is a regular guest every Tuesday. And The People Show uh, is coming up next uh, with Bick and Josh Elliott Wolf today. So stay tuned for that coming up after our show. Uh, more text coming in about just the, uh, you know, are you buying? Are you on Team Yannick or are you buying into what the Canucks are doing uh, under Rick Tockett so far? And this one came in from uh, Rager. 
uh, as I try to find it, because we got a ton of text in there who says, I refuse to be Charlie Browned by Lucy again. This team could win out the rest of the season, and it won't mean anything if they come out and do the same thing next year, and they're out of it by Canadian Thanksgiving again, uh, which is <laughs> Canadian Thanksgiving is <laughs> like when the season wow. starts. <laughs> wow, I love that. Uh, but it's a good way of putting it. I like this one as well. Uh, Johnny from Langley says, I'm torn. I'm mad about this team's decisions, but I'm a hockey fan, so I like watching my team. It's hard not to be happy to see the team do something decent to build on. In the long term, I'm still mad because there is no flexibility to build around this core. And I think that's a really good point from Johnny. Like in 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 all of the points he's making in that text, right? Like you can be very critical or skeptical about the direction the team has chosen to be going, but it's still really nice to be watching more competent hockey than we were on a regular basis than we were earlier in the season. And I think the point about even if you do buy into what you're seeing, there's obviously still improvements that need to be made, significant improvements that need to be made to take this team to the legit Stanley Cup contender tier. And, you know, they can play as... uh, they can, they can play with improved structure and get contributions from AHL guys and all of that. Like that doesn't create the flexibility to, as Johnny says, build around this core. That's still a major roadblock going forward. And I think that gets to kind of one of the central frustrations that a lot of fans have had with this team, not just this season, but going back the last few years is that you do see the legit Stanley cup building blocks like Elias Pettersson, like Quinn Hughes, like Thatcher Demko and theoretically, those should be the hardest things to acquire. Those, those should be the things that you're like desperately searching for and saying, man, how on earth are we going to find a number one level franchise center like Elias Pettersson? The Canucks have those. It's filling out the rest of the roster that has been so difficult. And, you know, the point uh, that you read from North Creek Dan saying like, hey, the core of this team has that high gear, but they need to be so good because the bottom of the roster is so problematic. And again, like I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing this by the way, where I twist everything into evidence for run it back. Like, yeah, you have the core, you have the core. You don't have to twist it because you're right. <laughs> so this is what, this is what I, this is what I, like, I think me, man. in a way, like the bottom of the roster being so poor is really a bummer, but I'd also rather have to fix that <laughs> than fix the top of the roster. You know what I mean? I'd much rather have that. And I think you're much more likely, as difficult as it is, you're much more likely to be able to do that on a cheap kind of bargain bin basis than you are to go out and try and find top six contributors. So again, yeah, like do what I'm saying. Try to raise the floor of this roster at the low end by finding more guys like Dakota Joshua, right? By leaning on your structure. Like once again, I'm proven correct in my analysis is basically what I'm saying here. Good for you. We need a backpack. We need a backpack drop. Me. Yeah, yeah. And we need a Jamie version because I don't think Jamie makes the same fajitas noise. Oh, <laughs> fajitas! By the way, somebody oh. texted in that that was when we were talking about blouses, <laughs> which was like I don't even know. I don't even remember that conversation. We were but talking person, about blouses. But the person texted in. You were talking about blouses. I was there, and I'm not okay. Oh, <laughs> I don't think we've ever talked about blouses. Oh, have I'm we? sure we have. Blouses. I'm I feel sure like are one have. of the few things that I don't have a take on. I gotta say, I also do not have a take on blouses. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I'm fine with them. I don't have any issue with blouses. Not anti-blouse. Are you? I I don't have a take on them. Complete ambivalence. Complete, Complete ambivalence. I, like I don't even know that if you asked me to like describe what one is that I could tell you. Well, that's ridiculous. It's a button-up, right? Yeah, it's like a women's button-up shirt. 
Okay. There you go. You but did is it. my button-up shirt a blouse? No. No. Why not? I think it has to be. Does it have to have tassels? No, it doesn't. So you have can't to have describe tassels. it either. No, it's 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 women's. No, I don't know. Yes, Dom is Dom is nodding. Oh yeah, well if Dom is nodding. Yeah, Dom is the uh... Dom's nodding. Dom's nodding because he's excited that Aaron Rodgers is going to the Jets. Good luck with that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, blouses for men. That's a thing. Men's wow. men's blouse at Amazon.ca. Yeah, just like rompers. Yep. Oh, Anyways. it looks like a men's blouse is like those half button ups. Sure. Yeah. Sure. There you go. Anyways, Dom, uh, oh, Dom he says, nailed it again. Uh, he texts back and he says, the people's show were talking about blouses. You guys were talking about male rompers. Oh, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. As defined by Google, blouse is a woman's loose upper garment resembling a shirt, typically with a collar, buttons, and sleeves. Okay. There you go. Thank you, Dom. Typically a woman. Typically. Woman's. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea what point I was just making before we got into blouse talk. Oh, about raising the the floor of the roster. Today, the word most commonly refers to a girl's or woman's dress shirt. However, it can also refer to a man's shirt if it is a loose-fitting style. Example, poet shirts and Cossack shirts. Poet shirts! (laughs) (laughs) Guys, do you think I should wear my poet shirt or my Cossack shirt tonight? (laughs) Neither. It's all a blouse, bro. Oh, just a blast. <laughs> All right. Just a blast. Let's let's do positivity early and get it out of the way. All right. Um There we go. Oh. 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 Uh, I'll start cuz I didn't uh, I didn't waste mine earlier in the show like you did. Um Neil Zaman. Oh. Putting up some points. Putting up some points recently. Another nice primary assist last night. That was, that was his nicest offensive yeah. play of the year. It's like okay, that's a sick feed. The 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 I think very fair conventional wisdom on Neil Zaman has been like showing us something, but what's the upside? What's the ultimate bottom line going to be there? And I'm not going to say, oh, all of a sudden he's picked up a couple of nice primary assists in the last two games that he's there yet. But like just looking at the numbers now, last 17 games, six five on five points. When you consider the minutes that he's playing, the role he's being asked to play, like okay, that's getting to the area where you can start to think, is he more than just kind of cheap fourth-line center? Can he do something else for you? And it's uh, it's a big improvement from what he was doing earlier in the season, right, where it was very much like, it's good that he's playing in the NHL, considering what they, you know, that he was a free acquisition, but how much is he ever going to move the needle for you? So it's just something I'm monitoring, something I like to see, showing a little offensive flair, some offensive chops, uh, from Neil Amon and uh, on a nice little run of point production recently that continued last night. So shout out to Neil Amon, man. Yeah, I, I liked that pass a lot. I, I also thought the atmosphere in the building was pretty good. It was like, there's empty seats, but it was relatively full. Um, considering how grim this season, where the stakes are at around this team, you know, you really had like a solid demonstration, I think, of two things. One how strong this hockey hockey market really is that there was still such a good crowd out for out, out for the game like i'd say at least 16k strong at this point in the year on a tuesday night against a non public team mm-hmm. like that's a really good outcome for this team in this circumstance and and i also think part of that too is i think the club's obviously getting very creative about how to fill the building and is doing a heck of a job it's it's a younger crowd than we've sort of expected at Canucks games in the past, but 
at the end of the day, the atmosphere is still pretty good. Still really good, even. Well, for, from an atmosphere perspective, there's almost like an inverse relationship between how out of a ticket it is. 100%. You know what I mean? Because people who are maybe don't have as much money to spend, but just really like hockey are more able to go. And yep. hey, they're going to increase uh, the atmosphere. But it also is just... Like, why do we spend two hours every day talking about this team? It's because this is a great hockey market. It's because yeah. people love this team. It's people awesome. want to cheer for this team. Like, we were talking about it earlier in the show. As much as we talk about the big picture, we also understand that more than anything, people want to sit down either at the game or at home or at a bar or at their buddy's place and be entertained by this team. And any time there's something to grab onto, something positive to hold onto, you see that response from fans. Like, and it just keeps reminding you... And it's positive because it's there. It also just keeps driving home for me. Like, Underlining. Man, oh, man. If only. If they were trying to finish first in the Pacific, like, what would the atmosphere have been like then on Tuesday? It would have been absolutely incredible. But it just, it, it's another way of showing you what an incredible market this is and, like, how good the fan base is and how good it will be if and when the, uh, the worm eventually turns for the Canucks. That's a good one. I like that one. I wasn't thinking about it, but you're right. After that, uh, after the Ducks snoozer, that was. Well, uh, I'm 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 gonna be honest with you. Last night was a little bit of a snoozer too. No, no, no. But I meant from like a atmosphere. Oh yeah, yeah. The atmosphere was good. Not not just talking I about th- the game. I think it helped that the Canucks were like winning more and scoring more, and you had like more big moments. Hundred percent. Yeah. Um, but the the style of hockey that this team's playing right now is not high event. Right, like no. it's not it's not particularly exciting hockey. There's a lot of stoppages, but like, hey man, a lot of stodgy breakouts. You play low event, you win. Fans are gonna like it. Fans are still gonna like it. They are. We're talking about it right now. Not as much as if you're winning super high event, high flying hockey. But they, are you kidding? You don't think this market will take wins, however they can get them at this point? Um, they absolutely think, will. Sorry, I think right now this market's expectations are on the floor. Right, like <laughs> step over the bar. The bar is on the ground. Like all you have to do is raise your foot a, a quarter inch. Um, so I think you're right for short term, for the short term. But aesthetically pleasing hockey matters in this market a lot, like more than in other ones. I think that's why. Uh, that's why the West Coast Express was celebrated the way it was. Yeah, that's why like the Sedin Twins were celebrated the way they were. It like takes I, I it really to the highest think, possible level, but I think you could still have a beloved team. That didn't play that way in this market because there is such an app. There's such an appetite for wins uh, and th- for winning. I think. I think long term, like I think if Vancouver had a neutral zone trap team, uh, look, if you win a cup, you win a cup. But I think if you had like a really low event, like a one three one team that that was like an up and coming one, not a team that people had like invested in, invested in mm-hmm. in the past. You know, not like the Tampa Bay Lightning, where it's like we remember your exciting days, and now we're now we're just. We've been on the journey with you. Yeah now, yeah, now we're just running up the score. Like that's one thing. But I think if you you know if you don't have that, if a team, if the Canucks come back next year and are you know a bottom ten offensive team, but a playoff team, I think people will like it for a year. I think if it happens again, I think people will start to criticize it. I, th- my, that's my sense of the. This market likes goals. This market likes Pavel Bure and Marcus Naslin and Todd Bertuzzi. Like this market has always gravitated. Kuzmenko, like Kuzme- the popularity like about Andre, uh, the popularity around Andre Kuzmenko tells you everything about the taste and appetite of this market. People will like it entirely correlated with how successful it is because you could be high flying and and offensively oriented, but if you're the West Coast Express and never get past the second round of the playoffs, like yeah, people are going to remember you fondly, but in the moment, there's going to be like 
can these guys play enough defense to win? Oh, of do they course. need to change their style a but little for, bit to but be serious? But for the most part, you will be um, you'll be a supernova in terms of your reaction. People will gravitate to the exciting hockey. I think I think this market cares about aesthetically pleasing hockey. Genuinely. I don't know. I don't think to the extent that it should like factor into how you go about building your team. They they care well about wins first and foremost. Sure, no, hundred percent. I mean, I don't disagree with that. I, I luckily I tend to think that exciting hockey is the hockey that tends to win most anyway. Sure, at least at least before now. the playoffs. Yeah, and like right now, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's always been the case, but that's certainly one way to win. No, but you a need speed. You but need I don't speed. think this is like, like a you know like like a Barcelona situation where if somebody came in and tried to play like negative football in Barcelona, there'd be a revolt in the streets because it's so embedded in their identity yeah, or, to or, play that way. You or know Dutch what I mean? football, right? Yeah. Where the, the Dutch make that World Cup final with that like grinded right, out team right. and, and the whole country like, has a horrific. national identity crisis. <laughs> we no, hate this. No, we're not, we're not at the level of total orange, but I do think that this market, like, you know, I always say like other than Gino, this market's never really like loved enforcers. Other markets. Gino's the, a pretty big except like a pretty big other than there, though. You know yeah, what I but, mean? Because he's one of the most beloved players in franchise history. Totally. But Gino's also a completely unique character. It's not like there's not like Gino's like a run of tough players who this market has loved. Like this market loves skilled guys. Skilled guys. That's what this market has always prized. That's what's resonated with fans in this uh, market. Rager Texan, no chance. I'd take a defensively boring team if they were an actual contender. Uh, 650, 650, and this text comes in unsigned. Talking to random fans at games and bars, I think this market actually longs for a tough, gritty team. Now, I will say, you can be offensively exciting and tough. Yeah, the the 2011 team was gritty. Like I, I don't know why people don't remember it that way, but like Ryan Kessler was one of the most assertive physical players I've ever seen play. Alex Burrows, Hanson, I mean, the Twins. Rafi Torres. The Twins lived along the wall and figured out how to use getting cross-checked in the back to get extra space from checkers. Like, almost no one was tougher than the Twins in terms of coming out of the wall with the puck. Uh, Biexa, on and on down the line. Like, that, that was a gritty team. In my in my mind, anyway. Despite yeah, they're not, they're not mutually They were exclusive. portrayed and in I, the 2011 I, Cup I final. don't think there's any doubt that... Fans also want, like, the kind of, I don't even know what the best word for it is, but, like, Ryan Kessler that season was kind of the archetype, right? Where he's, like, very skilled offensively and scored 40 goals, but also a tough, defensive-minded, gritty player in the in the same way. Like, yeah, fans are, of course, going to gravitate to a guy uh, who can do everything like that. Uh, people are pointing out Rick Rippin. Of course. So, of course. yes, absolutely. Yeah. That That's a very fair shout as a, a tough guy, a pugilist uh, who was a fan favorite here. In Vancouver, uh, Brandon. Hems- Although he was more than that too, right? Like he he, he wasn't a designated. Enforcer. No, no, he wasn't an enforcer. But that's that's what made him a fan favorite. Sure, was his fights. Yeah. Um, Brandon Vancouver Texan. You guys mentioning all these offensive superstars. Meanwhile, I'm reminiscing about Dan Hamhuis and Chris Tanev. Yeah, super they, fair. They were great players too. Super. <laughs> they fair. were absolutely great players too. Uh, Andrew and Victoria. The West Coast Express era is overplayed. One line got to play wide open, uh, and the rest of the team played the trap under Crawford. Not far off. The underusage of the Sedin Twins demands reexamination in their early seasons. I still believe that. I still believe that usage was a huge part of the story that we didn't quite understand um, in, in terms of their the slow start, and I put it in quotation marks, because today, I guarantee it, their underlying numbers would have been through the roof 
their scoring rates at five on five would have been through the roof. And we would have been on the radio crushing Mark Crawford every day for not upping their ice time. I promise you. Like, I promise you that with modern data, contemporary data. Oh, there's data, no doubt they would have been fancy sets, super superstars. Like, with, absolutely. With, with contemporary data, if we were doing our show today, but it was 2002, I, I would be absolutely filling the inbox with people being furious with me for my criticism of Mark Crawford. Who needs to play the twins more? Um, six fifty, six fifty. Keep your texts coming in, and people bring up like, "Oh, like what about uh, like Jeff Cowan?" I mean, that was a blip. That wasn't like a. <laughs> you can't put Jeff Cowan well, and, in the or, same category or, as like Gino OJ. Or people bringing up, um, bringing up um, Tiger Williams, who's like he fought. He wasn't an enforcer, right? But I think they're saying like he was a tough guy. He was tough. Yeah. He had that edge to his game. More of a two way guy. But Gino wasn't an enforcer in that sense either. Like he, he Gino was an enforcer. No, no, no. But Gino he, was like, a heavyweight. Yeah, but he wasn't just an enforcer. No, but he, he was, was a fighter. But he, he wasn't was like a enforcer. designated enforcer in the same way. Where that's all he does. I'm just saying, the way that skilled players resonate in this market is qualitatively different, and and the celebration and the lionization of the tough guy. Like you should see the way that the market when I went to South Florida, talked about Eric Branson For being tough. For being tough. Mm. And then you come up here and read the media clips, and it's like no one cared. Like, truly, it was worlds apart. Like, the other hockey markets do not view players the same way this one does, and this one loves skill. Uh, final few minutes here, and uh, we're going to be uh, not on the air together for a little bit coming up. I'm back on the morning show starting tomorrow, Drancer, for about a week. So uh, everyone get excited. Solo solo Drance here on Canucks Talk. Yeah, so we're up. doing we're doing one-hour shows Thursday and Friday. Just Drance. We need just the, Drance. We need the song. Just Drance. Oh, nothing else I'm here to do. Um, Just me. And then next week... I think you're rejoining me on Friday, right? Yes, next Friday. So next, oh, oh, a week Friday we'll be back together, but next week I'll do one show by myself, and I'll do three shows with the Boy Wonder, Harmon. Oh, Hyde. very nice. Yeah, should be fun. Uh, so between now and then, between now and our next show together, five Canucks games, starting with this three-game road trip, Arizona tomorrow, LA, Anaheim back-to-back Saturday and Sunday. First of all, first mullet arena experience for the Canucks uh, making their first trip to Arizona, which should be interesting. Are, are we, uh, are we, and I don't say us cause we're going to be on air together on Monday, but just collectively, how long is this win streak going? Are we talking about an eight game win streak on Monday? Oh, we could be we into like we Arizona Anaheim on the second half of a back to back. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it, those it's are winnable. Those are winnable. The, like the, the Kings games, the one that looms large, that is the hottest team in hockey right now, by the way, that's, um, you know, people, you you want me to own my L's? The L.A. Kings have massively surpassing L.A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's a take that has not aged well. Um, but not just because Calgary has you know done Calgary things. If you de- go back to when the Canucks, like if you go back to Feb- February first, so this is a pretty long stretch at this point, a month and a half. The Kings have played fifteen games, eleven wins. <laughs> like it's pretty good. They've got they've got an 800 point percentage they in over the last 15 games. Wild, eh? But the Arizona Coyotes 
right? Arizona has is like right there with the they Canucks have, in terms of points percentage. Twenty? No, they're uh, if no, you, no. In like over the last twenty games. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're ahead of the Canucks since February first, and not by a slim margin. They've got twenty three points out of their um, last eighteen games. So they're playing good hockey. Do not sleep. Not on, a gimme. No, it's not a gimme. Clayton Keller's good. Nick Schmaltz is good. Carol Vegmelka at some point is going to show Canucks fans what I keep talking about whenever they play the uh, the the Coyotes. Um, and then the Kings are not an easy opponent, so we'll see. Uh, yeah, that's it. To, tomorrow it was a travel day for the Canucks. They're down uh, in Arizona. You know what? Ducks three and four road back to back. Get in, get in relatively early to Newport Beach. That could be an if you want to. I mean, there's no real travel though. No, it's not the travel. Yeah. Oh, okay. I see yeah. what you're saying. <laughs> I, I see what you're saying. Uh, all right. Well, we'll see how it uh, how it evolves. And uh, yeah, I'll be back on Canucks Talk on Friday. I'm on the morning show. Until then, the People Show is up next here on Sportsnet 650. Fancy.